Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Welcome, everybody, to the Generous Business Owner Podcast. My name is Jeff Thomas. I'm one of the co-hosts, and we have one of our other co-hosts with us today, Jeff Rutt. Say hello, Jeff. Hey, everybody. How's it going? You can't see Jeff, but he has a fabulous beard going. So ask him about it if you ever get the opportunity. There's a story. Our, this is <laughs> it's just, you know, we maybe have to start doing video along along this. Jeff is, you know, such a good-looking man. that I hate to deprive everybody, okay? But... Uh, we have even a better looking man. This is getting weird already. Greg Ballmer with us today. Greg is the author of a couple of books with some friends of his, God and Money and True Riches, which are great reads. But he's also an entrepreneur in the healthcare space, uh, working on a new project, which uh, we will probably get to. But he's got a great story. You're in for a big treat. Greg, thanks for being uh, with us today. Thanks, guys. Really grateful for the opportunity and excited to be here. All right, Jeff, take it away. Ah, Greg, just get it, kick us off here. Tell us a little bit about the early days of Greg. What did things look like growing up in your family, especially spiritual influence? You know, early days, what did generosity look like in those early days? Yeah, so I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana. So I'm a Hoosier, born and bred. Grew up in a great Christian home. My parents were very involved in church, went to a great church. Came to faith at age 11 at church camp, was involved in youth group and summer camps and did all the stuff. I was also very interested in business at a young age. Started my first business in middle school, uh, burning CDs on Napster and selling them to my friends. Um, I didn't realize it was illegal at the time. Uh, That's kind of the only way you could do it. I mean, until Steve Jobs came along, it was a mess. I so, think yeah. this has been a general theme on the podcast. Everyone we interview had a business in junior high, and about 50% of them were not legal. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're right. <laughs> and uh, just sort of, you know, continued that life of crime ever since. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, but yeah, joking aside, so very, you know, involved in faith, very interested in business from a young age. But for some reason, those two paths or those two parts of my life never crisscrossed. It never occurred to me to think about business in light of my faith. I don't know why. I think one reason is we didn't talk about money a whole lot at my church. We didn't talk about money a whole lot from a spiritual perspective in my house. And so for, you know, for some reason, those were just two non-overlapping parts of my life. And so, you know, fast forward to my early 20s, you know, working a, a fancy job in downtown Boston with a private equity firm, earning a high income, frankly, was happy to spend just about every penny of it, e- even as my wife and I were going to church and, you know, sort of, you know, doing our duty and tithing, you know, as I was taught as a kid, thoughtlessly and in a rote and mechanical way. So that, that was sort of like the, the genesis of my early faith and early involvement in business. Yeah. So talk a little bit more about those, your, where, where you went to school and then early days of career, and then you made a shift back to school. Yes, that's right. So I attended Indiana University. You guys may have heard of it. It's America's preeminent academic institution. And uh, I think, don't, 
they were good at something with a hardwood floor way back in the 50s, I think. Is that, yeah. is that what it was? You got that right. And we take great pride in the 50s. Uh, <laughs> I don't want anybody to, to steal my password, but my password for a lot of things is the number of years that IU has won the national title in basketball. It is sad that that password ends with the digits 8-7 because 1987 is the last time that we won a championship. <laughs> I hope to update that password soon. We'll there see. you go. Also, Jeff, you mentioned that there's no visuals on this podcast, obviously, but uh, right above my finger in the camera here is the picture of Bobby Knight, our old basketball coach, throwing the chair onto the court, which is like a very iconic moment for any college basketball fan who's listening. They'll know what I'm talking about. I was wondering if that's what that picture was. That's amazing. Okay. Yeah, so attended Indiana University, met my wife in college. Uh, her name's Allison. We've been married 13 years. Um, she's amazing. She, uh, her only flaw, she went to Purdue University, uh, <laughs> which is our big rival. Um, but otherwise, she's an amazing woman of God. And early career, started my career with a consulting firm in Chicago, and then moved to the private equity firm that I mentioned. I fell in love with healthcare uh, while I was doing consulting. The reason I like healthcare is I, I love how it combines major kind of macro level issues, macroeconomic, macro political, major social policy issues that are complex and important. And you can zoom all the way down. And, you know, if I do my job better then my grandma will literally get better care. Uh, and so this combination of like, you know, nerdy macro stuff combined with very practical, tangible micro benefit is why I like healthcare. So did healthcare investing for a few years at the, at the private equity firm. And then Jeff, you mentioned going back to school. So I had the opportunity to enroll in the MBA program at Harvard Business School at that time. Wow. That's awesome. What was that like? Tell me about your experience there. You know, they call it the West Point of capitalism for a reason. It was very enriching and the collection of students is dynamic and fascinating and invigorating, intellectually stimulating. It's also just like this two-year bubble where you're, it's like not real life. And, and so it's a very unique experience that I'm grateful for. I also, you know, two important things happened during my time there that I think are somewhat unique amongst most MBA students. The first is that we had our first son. So that was an amazing experience. And although he does not remember that time, I got to spend so much time with him. Oh, yeah. But he was a newborn. That is, has not been the case. We have four kids total. For my second, third, and fourth kids, because I'm working full time, I just, you know, I'm not there during the day. But with my oldest, Grant, that was a really special thing for me to spend a lot of time with him. And then the second unique thing that happened there uh, is this God and Money project, Jeff, that you mentioned yeah. in the introduction. Okay, so this is a crazy story, right? Uh, the way I know it, you had to take some class or you had the option. You walk us through, you had this option to take a class kind of outside of the normal kind of business school thing, sort of anywhere at Harvard is what I'm picturing. And you, you and your buddy kind of meander over to the religion area or something like this to do this study, or you come up with this study that you want to do, you got to tell that story. Yeah, you got it. So I find myself at, you know, Harvard Business School. I'm in this Bible study with six other guys. We're all married. So, you know, the seven guys and our seven, you know, our spouses. So the 14 of us are friends. And 
all of us are, you know, purporting to be Christ followers, but yet all of us are at that school for a reason. And we all, I think, made choices that led to achievements that allowed us to get into that school that in some, though not all cases, maybe are not aligned with what you might typically think of as a Christ-centered view of money. Uh, And so we started to really ask ourselves, what does it mean to be a Christian in this place? And given the possible opportunities we may have with finances in our future, by no means guaranteed, but if you just sort of look at the average earnings curve and net worth curve of graduates of this school, it's a number far larger than any of us ever anticipated earning. How do you live into that in a faithful way? We started exploring those questions in our Bible study. And around that same time, there was an opportunity to cross-register into a class over at Harvard Divinity School called God and Money, which explored the intersection of faith and finance in our culture. And you guys may you know, be aware, Harvard Divinity School is by no means like an evangelical seminary. You know, It's better thought of as a liberal arts school of religion. In our class of 50 students or so, there were three evangelical Christians me and my good buddy, John, who he and I did the books together, being two of those three. (laughs) But I'll tell you a funny story about the first impression that we made in that class. The first day of class, the professor is just talking about like, what is money? You know, what do you think of when you think of the word money? And he asks each of us to pull like a dollar bill out of, out of our wallet. And, you know, the, the divinity school kids are pulling out like dollar bills or, you know, maybe like change the Tibetan monks in the class, like didn't even have a wallet. (laughs) and then i look over at john and all he has in his wallet are hundreds exactly and he puts up a hundred and i look at my wallet and all i have are hundreds (laughs) and like you know that's the first impression the business school kids make on the divinity school kids yeah central casting good luck yeah Yeah, central casting um and so final term paper for that class could be written um, on any subject related to God. So John and I chose to write a paper on how we would try to be wise stewards if we were ever blessed with more than we needed. And God, in his providence, used that project to totally transform our view of money, which led to a transformation of our whole worldview, honestly, ultimately culminating, I would say, in the in my case, and John would say this too, the most important thing that has happened in our walk with the Lord, drawing us nearest to him. We read the whole Bible front to back, everything it had to say about money, all 2,350 verses. Thankfully, we didn't have to catalog those. Howard Dayton had previously done that. He's a giant in this space, an amazing man of God. And we also surveyed 200 Harvard Business School alumni who are Christians We had their contact details from the same Bible study that we were part of. We asked them really personal questions, how much they make, how much their net worth was, where they give, how much they give. And we used a combination of those two things, God's word and the stories of these radically generous Christians to write our paper. And, you know, we got an A minus on that paper, which I thought was like pretty good. I had written exclusively in PowerPoint slides for like the 10 years leading up to this. Yeah, exactly. So I was satisfied with that. But God had much bigger plans. And the deal was, these alumni, if you took our survey, we'd send the paper back to you. So when we completed the paper, we sent it out to these 200 folks. 
Uh, and they got some energy around it and really encouraged us to continue the project. And so in our final semester of grad school, we did like an independent study where we turned that term paper into a manuscript. And through a crazy series of events, too much detail for this forum, God flew open doors of opportunity that ultimately allowed that paper to become a book called God and Money. Well, if I can just say, I would strongly endorse listening to that book or reading that book. Greg, I'm sure you can tell us, tell our listeners if they're running on the treadmill or walking the dog, where the best place to find the book. But uh, that is a great read, a great listen, and uh, definitely I would highly, highly recommend it. So thanks for saying that, Jeff. I appreciate it. So Greg, where, what were the key findings? What did you expect to learn? And then how was that how is reality different from your expectation? Well, before you move on to that question, where's the best place to find it, Greg? Yeah, thanks for asking, Jeff. Yeah, any place books are sold. So We're going to put a, we'll put a link to in the show notes. Yes, you can find it in all the usual places. God and money. Yes, thanks, Jeff, for that. I appreciate it. So key findings. So if I'm being honest, guys, really, we set out to write the paper to determine how little we could give and still be found faithful, <laughs> you know? Like, is it 10%? Like, is 12%, you know, extra credit? Um, but again, God really used that project as a transformational moment in my faith. And <clears throat> we had a few key takeaways. One is that everything we have truly does belong to God, which I think, you know, any Christian would intellectually agree with that point if you ask them point blank. So the issue is not one of intellectual understanding, but rather it is the divergence between what we say we believe and what we do. And, and certainly that was the case in, in my life. So it's an issue of practice rather than belief. So God used that to convict me of the divergence between my stated belief and my practice. The second key takeaway is if that first point's true, then everything ought to be used for his purposes, which includes providing for our families as we see in 1 Timothy 5 and 6. So by no means is this sort of a call to poverty, giving everything away. Um, in 1 Timothy Paul even says that to not care for your family is worse than being an unbeliever. And then the third takeaway is if everything else to be used for his purposes, then any excess that we have can be poured back into his kingdom for his glory. And we, you know, started asking this common question, how much is enough? And the more we dug into that, we realized that we were looking at the issue backwards how much is enough assumes that it's ours and it starts with the posture of consumption and then what's left over is God's. That's like the line of logic. If you start with how much is enough, we thought looking at it backwards or in other words, how much do I really need to keep? So all of this is God's and I will keep some of it to use for providing for my family. It starts with the posture that it's all his. Yeah, And it assumes that a lot of it stays with him and a portion of it I keep to care for myself. And so then the rest of the book is just a really nerdy exploration of that question. <laughs> That's really interesting, though. I hadn't really thought of it that way, even though, like, I know Jeff and I often talk about Alan Barnhart, and of course, you, you know Alan from Generous Giving and that sort of thing. But, you know, when I first heard Alan's story, I was just trying to be a tickled tither. And then when I heard him giving away like 99 point whatever percent of his net worth, it blew my mind 
You know what I mean? And so it just like sort of breaks your brain in, in terms of what's even possible. And so that that's, I think that, you know, we do often ask people like how much is enough? Okay. It's a good starter question, but I think that's an, a more advanced question, perhaps. Uh, how much am I allowed to keep, right? Is that kind of how you say it? Yeah, that's right. And I think maybe it's even how much do I get to keep? Um, right, get to keep, yeah. You know, because allowed even, you know, assumes some sort of formula or that God is like strict in how much he allocates to us when in fact our God is a lavishly generous God who richly provides for our enjoyment. You can read, you know, Malachi 3, 9, and 10 as an example. A little less legalistic. Yeah. Get yeah. is a get to do, not a must do or a... It's a yeah. posture of gratitude. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And, and, uh, and then we get to steward the remainder. Yeah. And I would say, you know, you mentioned Alan Barnhart. You spend any time with that guy, you quickly learn he's generous. What sits with you even more is the depth of his intimacy with the Lord. Mm-hmm. And the wholehearted way that he has submitted his life to his creator. And I would say that this journey into exploring, you know, how much do I really need to keep has you know, obviously informed my perspective on generosity, but more so it has allowed me to enter into a really vulnerable conversation with Jesus that has brought me closer to him holistically in all areas of my life. And that has been the biggest blessing from all this. Yeah. What's so cool about that is, well, another Alan Barnhart story that one of the things he always says is it's a good thing he told the world that he was just going to set his salary and give everything else away because there are a few times where he's like, uh, yeah, I better stick to it. I already made promises. So when you, when you write a book like the one you guys wrote and you put it out there in the universe, right? that these are the principles, you're a young, you guys are young, right? You're still young in uh, our estimation, okay? So, because you, you got out of Harvard 15, is that right? That's right. Okay, so you're still young. There is, uh, you know, you can make an argument that it's easier to be more generous later because maybe you had some runway in your career <laughs> to do it the way you want to, but you guys are still pretty early career here. And uh, so that puts a little pressure on you. How did you work that out personally? Yeah, that's a great point, Jeff. So, you know, I'll say it's like one thing to sit in our ivory tower in (laughs) Massachusetts writing about- Pontificate. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Pontificating about (laughs) money that we don't yet have. Right. Uh, And it's another thing to actually put into practice. Yeah. And so John and I- Again, John is like one of my closest friends and the guy I did the book, did the book with. Uh, we were each shocked at how quickly God did call us to put these uh-huh. concepts into practice. In John's case, it was a call away from a very lucrative career path in oil and gas into Christian ministry uh, where he took like a 67% pay cut. And you know, he likes to joke that he's not helping the Harvard Business School salary statistics. Right. Uh, and then for me, it was different. You know, I, I joined a healthcare startup out of grad school. And just six weeks after I joined, our business was acquired by a much larger healthcare company for over $400 million. And I was a, you know, granted very small equity holder in the startup. 
Uh, and so just six weeks into my new gig, I earned an equity payout that was infinity times my net worth, which was negative at the time. Right. And, uh, you know, that was God, I think, saying, here's a chance for you to be obedient. Will you put these concepts that I taught you into practice? Um, and, you know, we, Allison and I like really learned some, some key lessons from going through that. One is the value in establishing financial finish lines. Like you mentioned a yeah. moment ago, Alan Barnhart's salary limit. One thing the book does is try to get really specific on a, what we call a financial finish line, which is like a sort of an annual cap on consumption and then yeah. also like a net worth cap with a clear understanding that there is no biblical command to do that, right. to be like very clear on that point. But for us, it is a best practice way to walk obediently with the Lord and our finances especially in a in the culture that we live in which is so consumptive and so materialistic putting those rules in place while by no means a christian command is a a, a very helpful tool um so because we had put those financial finish lines in place it was much easier to allocate the funds from the sale of the business across the categories of spending saving and giving but the second thing we learned man is like even with that money is still very tempting but for some reason, you know, I think the human heart, heart is just particularly prone to the trappings of wealth. And so, you know, I started looking at like cool cars because um, we needed a second car so that I could commute to work. You know, not a Mercedes, mind you, that would like obviously be sinful. No, I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> I'm just, just BMWs are okay. Yeah, exactly. Mercedes, was, definitely not. I was certain that an Acura was in the center of God's will for my life. But Allison, my wife, is like, really? Like, do we really need to spend that much on a car? And after I got done pouting, I realized that we did not. And I, re re I remembered that my grandmother had a 2002 Mercury Grand Marquis sitting in her garage that she could no longer drive. And so that's what I drove for the first five years out of grad school. I sadly totaled it a while back. Uh, thankfully, everyone was okay. But so I had to get a new car. But that Grand Marquis for me was a daily reminder that my value is not found in my stuff, uh, which for, you know, a guy who's wired like me is a reminder I need. Yeah, it, I think it's, I just think it's such a good observation. It is, it is not easy and it's, it is very countercultural. I mean, that's the reason we're doing this podcast. We, I mean, I'll speak for myself. I feel that pressure in an industry that's consumptive. And I mean, our culture's consumptive. I don't even want to blame my industry any more than anybody else's. Uh, there, I'm sure that, you know, there's plenty of home builders, Jeff, that, you know, you go to the convention and, you know, they, they've got their multiple homes and all that stuff. And so like, I like, I need to have friends like you guys to talk to as my support group to think differently, you know? Yeah, Jeff, how do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes it takes that outward reminder to not only for ourselves, but also to encourage others. I know that's, that's how I met Alan Barnhart was Peter kept getting picked up at the airport by Alan and his, you know, at the time, I think it was a 2002 Impala. And then he would write these, you know, six, six figure checks, you know, lots of them to Hope International. And I said, I got to meet this guy, you know, and, uh, I'm, we're, Alan and I bond over our cars, you know, the really old high mileage cars. And it's something that I think is a visual reminder, but it also kind of 
uh, strengthens and uh, just it's a it's a good reminder not only for ourselves but others. Hey, it's okay. You know, we're not in this competition to, you know, see who can drive the most expensive car. But yeah, I think it, God uses different things in different ways. But yeah, thanks for thanks for being a leader in this, Greg. And again, I, I would encourage you if you haven't read the book, read it or listen to the Audible. A lot of good principles in there that are biblical. And this is really cool to hear how. God tested you as soon as you finished, as soon as you put your pencil down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jeff, thanks for saying that. Was, you know, I think even the point you made about the car connects back to a point that Jeff made a moment ago about when to be generous and is it easier later in life? And one thing that I'm so grateful to the Lord for is that he elected to reveal some of these lessons to me early in my professional career. Because my observation is that while perhaps, you know, the ability to write bigger checks becomes easier once you've had some runaway in your career, it's not about that. And backing off of a lifestyle that you've built up with fancy cars and with nice houses and with expectations around vacations and all the stuff is so much harder when you're, you know, say in your fifties at the peak of your earnings power. And yes, you're writing bigger checks. But God doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. And your heart is even harder to get to if you've built up that lifestyle. So for us, one of the biggest benefits of this, you know, quote, financial finish line, like, yes, it does allow us to give more. And that's great. But more so, it protects our heart from the damage that happens over a multi-decade being surrounded by our culture's just, you know, worship of mammon. This is exactly what Alan always says is the key word for him is always protection. Like he says, I just, I just don't have to deal with it. And he started young also. And so he's like, I just never had to wrestle with the issue. We just set it up and they papered a lot of it later, but he always acted that way. And, it, and he literally feel that's how he feels about it. Like his core thing isn't like, he's not all impressed with the checks he writes to charity. Like he's, you know, I know that's a wonderful thing in his life, but he always talks about the protection which I think is so interesting in that intimacy that you talk about. So, and, and, but I also think it's interesting that, you know, God usually gives you a buddy along the way, you know, an accountability partner a little bit. So has John been that for you? Absolutely. Yeah. John is one of my best friends, his wife, Megan, and, and my wife, Allison, the four of us are very close. And I mentioned earlier, this Bible study that we were part of the, and the seven guys, uh, we've stayed really close. We formed a group that we call our Board of Directors for Life, affectionately known as the Badoffel. And the concept was one of the guys in the group, he came to our study one time and said, hey, you, you know, you, you guys know how companies have boards of directors? Couldn't we have that same concept in our personal lives? It's not the management team, right? Like it's not intended to replace local community, day-to-day -day accountability through your local church and local community, through your spousal relationship. But similar to a board of directors, it can advise and provide support on the bigger things in life, how we're doing as children of God, as husbands, as fathers, as employees. So we do monthly conference calls and annual visits. Uh, our next in-person is in February. We're meeting in San Diego. 
And, you know, as groups of guys do, like we'll definitely do some fun stuff, but we'll also spend like really intentional time digging in like a board meeting on each of our lives. And one component of that is financial transparency. So we share our finances with each other. And what is really special about doing that is it ends up not being like a critical analysis of spending habits. It ends up being more celebration and gratitude for how God has provided and the opportunities he's given us to be generous. And so we share things like what's your best giving story for the year? How did your relationship with God mature this year through your finances? You know, probably one of the most common pieces of of, uh, advice that we give is you need to be spending more on your marriage. (laughs) So, and then because I know I'm going to be sharing my finances, there is this like built-in accountability, but that's not what the conversation is about. So it's, it's a really special time. You know, I think that's a critical component to what you just said, because if most of the people listening are like me, that level of transparency probably freaks them out. Okay, because you're you're waiting for the judgment. Let's be honest. But I think what you said is so important because actually it ain't just you who's getting the accountability. First of all, it's a group deal. So they're feeling the same way. Okay. And then I like that it comes to a celebration. That's so interesting because I don't think that's, I was not expecting that to be what you were going to say, to be honest with you. I, I thought you might say, uh oh, here my turn. You know, what's my grade gonna be with a bunch of high performers? Right, you always want to outperform the curve. You know, <laughs> totally. Yeah, and look, that's really interesting. Like to be clear, like you know, this exercise could be fraught with peril if you invite the wrong people into it. And so, I, I think our group is really unique, and I thank God for this that there are seven of us that have yeah. been able to align around this. And I think it's because we met in a really unique environment, which was grad school while none of us were working and none of us had any money. I would say that like, if you're in the workplace now and seek to form such a group, you know, seven people is probably not the right number to shoot for. But if you can find two other people, and my recommendation would be have one of those be like your approximate peer from an income or net worth perspective who gets it and have one be someone in ministry who can really speak truth spiritually and, you know, is not threatened by the income differential because, you know, there's obviously just like a different level a lot of times in ministry. So that would be my advice for folks who are trying to form a group. You need to make sure you're not going to cause your brother to stumble. You need to make sure you're not going to stumble over your brother sharing with you, but it can be a really rich time. The other thing I'll say is like, because we anchor it in this gratitude and celebration, that is just one tangible example of a broader point I would make, Jeff, which is giving is, in my opinion, best thought of as a joyful act of worship. It is not a rule book we're following. It is not some sort of just rote formula. It is an opportunity, I think, to do a few things. One is recognize God's character as lavishly generous. He is the ultimate generous giver. Number two is reflect his character back to him. I think generosity is one of many character traits of God that he calls us to embody. And being, you know, being generous is one more way we can become more Christ-like. And then third is 
in his sovereignty, he has elected to give us financial resources that we get to use to participate alongside him in building his kingdom here on earth. And we can celebrate that. So I think when we understand giving through those three lenses, through understanding God's character, sanctification, or in other words, growth in Christlikeness, and third is active participation in bringing forth his kingdom, that is joyful worship. And that is why we're able to focus on celebration and gratitude as opposed to judgment or, you know, bean counting how much we spent this year. I love that perspective. And as we drill down on, on this idea of the giving itself and the benefits to you, I'm telling you, Greg, this probably won't surprise you, but a lot of the questions we get, I mean, I, I've been in com- two conversations in the last 24 hours about this topic of how you then determine where to give because, you know, stewarding what you keep, deciding sort of your asset allocation, if you will, of what to keep, what to give, all of these sort of things. Okay, now you have more in the giving bucket. And uh, and then, so I know True Riches speaks to this a little bit. Can give us a little guidance on how you think about the where to give? Yeah, great. So what I do is I just follow the formula in Second Thessalonians. No, just, there's no formula, right? Like there is no exactly. formula. Exactly. So, you know, so the first thing we need to recognize is if God wanted all Christians to give in the same way and in accord with one way, he would have outlined that, but he did not. So the first thing to understand is that determining with your spouse, if you're married, where to give is one of, in my opinion, the most fun things to wrestle through with God each year. Number two is to create safe space for experimentation, trial and error, and learning. Again, I don't know why God designed humans like this, but the reality is the way we learn best is through making mistakes. Yep. And I can definitely point to, you know, I'll call them giving mistakes. I mean, I hate to say mistakes because it's still being given to like a good Christian yeah, yeah. organization, but you know, we sharpen our perspective over time through trying things. So leave space for that and give yourself grace. Okay. So then to get more nerdy about it, what John and I did is we studied everywhere in scripture that God explicitly commands someone to give. And we tried to bucket all of those examples into a framework. And I've seen more than one good framework for this, but the framework we landed on I think you can bucket all examples in scripture into three buckets. One is to spread the gospel. So bring the gospel message to people who do not have it today. Yes. Number two is serve the poor. Yes. And this is by far the most common by count in scripture. And I would say the least addressed by the Western church today. I think about Isaiah 58, which is like a whole chapter about serving the poor. And it says like, you know, if you're obedient and kind of all these verses above, if you're obedient and serving the poor, then the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. And I just think it's a beautiful image. That sounds pretty good. Sounds pretty good, right? And then the third bucket is a discipleship of existing Christians, which is most commonly expressed through investment in the local church. And so Allison and I use that framework. We use those three buckets and we pick two or three organizations within each of those buckets to emphasize our giving. I think it's, you know, you don't want to have 25 organizations you're giving to, you know, what's the right number? I would say the right number is the number that you can actually know key people there and 
that you can com- realistically, consistently commit to praying for them. Yep. And that's the right number, <laughs> you know, of organizations, because it's not right. just about stroking checks. And then, you know, I would say, so that's like the main thing. Then beneath that, you know, I think most listeners will be familiar with like the five love languages book. Yeah. I think there's a similar concept in giving, which Mm. is connecting back to my prior point about how giving should be thought of as a joyful act of worship. God wired each of us to worship differently through our giving. So for me, it's like January 2nd, like I've got my spreadsheet figured out and my plan gifts and like all, you know, the ACH is already pre-set up. Right. And I can like tell you with honesty that I can worship God through that. My wife cannot, like she gets nothing through that. She is much more spontaneous in the moment, connected to the spirit. So we allocate a portion of our giving to what I call Allison's slush fund, which she can give whenever, wherever, to whomever, anytime she wants, for any reason, as she feels called. And that is how she comes alive in Christ through our giving. And what I have found, Jeff, is like, as much as I appreciate my planned giving, and I think there's like, for sure, a place for that. I often, as a result, will miss the local things happening right in front of my nose that I don't see. And Allison gets us involved in ways the Holy Spirit is working locally through her organic giving that I would miss through my planned giving. So I think doing both has been powerful for our marriage and frankly, for how God is using us in the kingdom. That is so cool. If you need a third book idea, I'm digging it. One of our guys, our COO, Kale Dow, is uh, working on a, a book called The Wealth Languages which is no uh, kind of similar to help people communicate about that. But I love this idea of giving languages, whatever it is, uh, but because people do it differently and that's okay, you know? So I think, I think that's a really, really cool idea. You know, if you don't mind, let me take you back real quick before we wrap up to just something that was coming to mind as you were talking. One thing we, I sort of neglected to ask earlier, I think, is, when you did this survey of all of these alumni, and, and you, you sort of said how it affected you, but did you see a correlation between, did, were there some pro- surprises in there of, of the people that were more generous, were more joyous, or do you mind just unpacking that a little bit? I think that's a super interesting research deal. Yes. So a couple of unique things happened with that survey. One is the response rate was super high. Oh, normally in a long survey of deeply personal information, you would not typically expect a very high response Good rate. Good point. And 50%, so we sent it to wow. 100 people and, and 50% responded, so 200 That's responded, amazing. Which shows there's real energy around this. True. Thing. The second is probably unsurprisingly, I mean, you know, if you are bold enough in your faith to like be in the Christian fellowship while at HBS and opt into a survey on this, you're probably like predisposed toward generosity. That's the generosity levels of the respondents was ridiculously high. But when I drilled in to a certain number of families who had left kind of like open form notes in the survey, there was a, you know, it was a minority, but a meaningful minority of the respondents had discovered um, incredible richness in their faith through stepping into this generosity journey. And so we interviewed those families 
and found a level of joyful submission to the spirit that I had never encountered before, particularly of high performing business professionals, you know, maybe on like a mission trip, you know, where there's like the missionary who has like seen a thousand miracles, like maybe that, you know, but I've never in America, high performing business people seen them just like totally lit up for this stuff. Yeah. And that set an example for John and I that we wanted steeply. And that ultimately what I realized is it's not like their whole faith is centered on generosity. That's yeah. not the case. And I think, to be honest, sometimes when we're talking about generosity, it becomes the point. And I would encourage anyone listening to make sure that's not you. Rather, God used generosity in the lives of these radically generous Christians as the on-ramp into total, wholehearted, joyful, deep, lavish life in Christ. And that's where the joy was coming from. Not just because they were giving more, although that was a piece of it, but they were really in the center of God's spirit. And that was the brightness coming off of them. You know, it's cool. I have this vision as you're talking about that of almost like a virtuous loop, right? Where it's the faith that motivates you perhaps to be generous. Like you get this worldview, like at least for me, it was like, wait, God really does own it all. Like I had to move it from the head to the heart, and then you start behaving this way. And then as you start behaving that way, in a a generous way, we know the verse, where your treasure is, your heart is also. And then suddenly you get really involved in that, and it reinforces the faith thing, and you get a deeper relationship with Christ, which makes you want to be more generous, which makes you engage more. So it's this virtuous loop. Is that, do you think that's fair? I think that's totally fair. I think... That is a tangible example of the definition of sanctification, which yeah. is gr- growing in Christ-likeness. And I think it could be applied to a number of virtues with generosity being one. And I think generosity is one that is perhaps most countercultural in our culture. But I think, you know, the cycle is the Holy Spirit works through a combination of, and you know, I think most commonly his word prayer and the examples of other Christians, you engage with that uh, kind of mentally, it moves to your heart, you apply it. It's like an aha moment of amazing joy and growth. And then the cycle starts over again and you just learn to go deeper and deeper and deeper in these areas. It's so good. I've got a friend that's asking that question. How do you move it from your head to your heart? And I think, I mean, the real answer is, I mean, the Holy Spirit can help but this exercise of practicality, taking steps, and it, it's like any workout, you know, you work the muscle and it gets stronger. And, uh, you know. You know what's interesting, Jeff, on that point? It, John, John, my partner in this, has an awesome anecdote from his life that hits on this point you just made. And you quoted, you know, where your treasure is, there your heart will be right. also. And I, that verse is most commonly explained as if you put your treasure and worldly things, then that's where your heart will be. And I think that is, to be clear, like accurate. That is an accurate interpretation of that. But John applies it in a different way, which is he would confess with honesty that prior to this whole project, he did not have much of a heart for the poor. You know, he was probably more of like a pull yourself up by your bootstraps, like, you know, type attitude. Did not have the heart for the poor that God clearly does if you read scripture. Yep. 
and the Holy Spirit convicted him, start giving to the poor. Even if you don't feel compelled to or passionate about it, start directly giving to the poor. And John, and I see this in him, so I testify to this Mm -hmm. impact, has grown his deep, sincere love and empathy for the poor by giving. And so he would say, the way that that verse is applied in my life is I put my treasure in a good thing and God caught my heart up to it. You know what it reminds me? I love that. You know what it reminds me of is I always picture um, Moses standing there at the Red Sea, right? And they're chasing down the Israelites that are fleeing Egypt, right? And uh, God's like, go through the Red Sea. He's like, uh, my theory is it's not in the Bible, right? My theory is he got a little wet. Yes. You got to get a little wet before the miracle comes. That's right. You know what I mean? So I think think there's just action, right? We can't just wait for it all to happen. You got to kind of, that's the faith piece. You got to just act in faith on what it says and then watch what happens. You got it. That's so cool, man. Well, listen, I'm going to pop something on you that we always do at the end of the podcast. And uh, you're great at thinking on your feet. I didn't really prepare you. But what we try to do, this is just, entrepreneurs and business people talking to other entrepreneurs and business people. I always think of this as just like, I'm talking to my friends and, uh, Alan and Jeff, we're just talking to our friends. And sometimes you have a really cool conversation. You wish your other friends had heard it, you know, that kind of deal. And so since it's just a practical deal, one of the things we always say is, you know, okay, somebody's driving in their car. They're like, that's great. He got it in Harvard. I I'm struggling with it. I'm not quite sure what to do, but I got this business. It's going pretty well. What do I, where do I start? You know, so we, we always try to think about like a little practical tip, just something they can apply in the next day or week. It can be very small. It doesn't have to be something, but along this theme that we're talking about, like just take action. What's, what's a suggestion? What comes to mind when I say that as a suggestion? Yeah. What comes to mind for me, if you're looking to take your first step, do one of two things. You got to have some fun with it. So that's going to be the theme of these two good. ideas. Good. A good way to start is to have some fun with it. Because again, joyful act of worship, right? Joyful. All right. Number one, do a generosity caper. So you think about capers, like, like from, you know, TV shows in the 80s or whatever. Do a caper. Come up with some silly, fun, generous thing that you can do for a friend or a family member or a colleague. You know, one thing that we've done before is in rooms we're in, like if we're at a forum of some kind, is like put $20 bills under all the seats and just tell them, oh, like, wow. Like you get to give it away to somebody. Yeah. We've bought, we've, you know, if you're in conversation with someone and they know that they like something, uh, you know, buy like a lavish gift. Like not, when I say lavish, I don't mean like a super luxury purchase, but it's just something that someone would not buy you randomly for no reason. Otherwise, it's going to be a little shocking. Yeah, and a little shocking. That's a yeah. great language for it. Just do it for fun. Okay, so that's yeah. idea number one is do a generosity caper. Idea number two, ask your spouse or one of your kids something that they're passionate about and then together with them, make an online gift of significance to that organization on the spot. Just do it yeah. no matter what they say. So I did this with my son the other day. He's eight and he really likes sloths. I don't know. Like he loves like the slot. He's an eight year old boy. This is not yeah. surprising. Who knows? So as it turns out, there's like a wildlife federation. Like Bay of the sloth. Yes. It's, it's even hard to say. Exactly. 
So is that normally the type of thing that I would give money to? Like, definitely not. But I right. sat down <laughs> and like just did it. And like the joy on his face and that the conversation awesome. we got to have was worth 50x right. that I gave to save the sloth. Right. Right. So, so those are my two ideas. I love it. I love it. Well, those are super practical and uh, we just love having you on. It's very unique. I, I just think it's uh, it's just a great God story where he got a hold of you at a really critical time with some other buddies, you know, John, but those other five folks, you know, it's a very unique story that I think will uh, help a lot of people. So, uh, Greg, thanks for uh, being on the show today. Jeff, thanks for having me. It's been a blast and grateful for the work y'all are doing. Well, uh, thanks everybody for listening to uh, this week's Generous Business Owner Podcast, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner Podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.